number three. Pete Callender here, News Talk 1110 993 WBT. WBT. You got to say it like that. 704 570 1110 WBT 1110. Going over the U.S. Senate debate performance by Sherry Beasley, the Democrat, and Ted Budd, the Republican, that was held on Friday, uh, carried only on Spectrum News. Uh, they did post video of the debate afterwards up on their website, so I appreciate that. I was able to watch it in its entirety after the fact uh, because the night of it was only available on their app. So, oh, that reminds me, i got to delete that from my phone. Um, so they covered a bunch of different topics. Uh, as I mentioned in the last hour, Sherry Beasley is disqualified, I would submit, disqualified uh, for the office because she apparently does not understand the connection between government spending and inflation. And uh, when given multiple opportunities to make that connection, she refused to do so or was not able to do so. I don't know why she refused. Ted Budd, uh, he said, yeah, you know, the government spending caused the inflation. He defended Donald Trump's spending and the Republican spending. But he um, but he said that Joe Biden and Democrats went too far uh, after you know the pandemic, the initial round of stimulus money uh, was uh, done in uh, the beginning of the pandemic. Now you can argue, as I said earlier, you can argue that um, that he's being hypocritical. You can say, oh, "Well, all of it was wrong," and he's just saying that because it's his team that did the spending. Okay, and look, there, that's a perfectly legitimate, good faith argument to make. You can do that, sure. However. Um, at the core of that argument rests the assumption that the government spending is connected to inflation. And what his argument says is that the juice was worth the squeeze, that they had to risk the inflation or induce the inflation in order to combat the effects of shutting down the entire economy. And again, you could say that that was bad, good, whatever. There are all these different arguments to be had in there, but at least he recognizes the connection. And honestly, it's better for, for me, this is just my personal opinion, it's better for elected officials to understand that there is a connection than to deny one exists. Because what do I do with somebody like Sherry Beasley who refuses to acknowledge the connection? How do I convince her to stop spending recklessly? There's no argument to make there. I can't shame her. I can't persuade her because she doesn't see a connection, at least with Bud. He recognizes a connection, so I can try to appeal to him on those grounds that, hey, you know this is going to cause like really crazy inflation again. Maybe maybe we should cut the spending. And if he does decide to cut spending, I'm going to support that because it's going to help reduce inflation. Anyway, let me go over here to uh, Stan. Hello, Stan. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hi. How are, how are you doing? I'm well. It's being too hot. That's right. It calls me for people to vote for something that's that stupid. When it's that stupid, I will not put a product or service out there for sale for a certain price if I don't know that it can be paid for. Right. And when all these industries, the government controls, when they government makes make when the government makes it possible to charge the higher prices because they pay for it, and people see the government credit, like with colleges, with uh, health care, and with everything the government touches. They put it out there for the government guaranteed price. So the fact that the government is causing this inflation and then turns around and tries to convince you that basically, that basically they are going to take take this all this money back from the criminals that they caused in the first place, 
How long are people going to be stupid enough to keep voting for that? Because people don't have any idea. They don't understand how any of this works. That's why that's why they blame Biden for gas prices, for example. You know, and, and I, I've, I've said this for 20-something years, right, when they were attacking George W. Bush for the price of gasoline, the price at the pump, and they were saying it was all his fault. And, I'm, and my argument was, so you think that the president sits at some computer and he just taps keys and says, you know, raise the price of gas, lower the price of gas, raise the price of gas? No, you can do things that have impact on those prices, absolutely. But you're tying, like, there's no direct... Uh, uh, presidential power that is raising prices at the pump. This is the fatal conceit of the command controllers, right? These people who think that right. I can, I, the central planners are they're somehow are, they're able to set the quote correct price of any good or service at any given moment based on the needs and uh, the the income levels and the uh, disposable income of of millions, hundreds of millions of people. It's absurd. This, you, you, this, this you, might be why they don't want to teach math in public schools. That's why they call it racist. Yeah, well, math, it's not even I mean, math and economics, right? This idea right. that the free market, like this, the, the free market is simply, free market, I appreciate the call, Stan. Free market capitalism is simply everybody making their own decisions. That's it. It's freedom. It's the freedom to choose. If you want, you know, Milton Friedman, when the fam- uh, talking about the famous pencil, you look at a pencil and, you know, you look with the eraser. Where does the eraser come from? Right. Rubber trees some in some country. And then you've got the metal band around the eraser. Uh, and where does that metal come from? And then where is it manufactured? Where is it smelted? Where is it turned into this little band? Where is it uh, connected to the to the wood of the pencil? And where does that wood come from? And where does the graphite come from uh, in the in the tip of it? And then where is the stamp put on the outside of the pencil and the paint? And where is it packaged? And how does it get to you? Every single I mean, and then they sell it to you for what? Ten cents. That is amazing, is it not? Think about all of the processes that have to be done in order to get this simple pencil that I hold in my hand. Literally, I'm not lying. I have a pencil in my hand. I'm old school like that. I have, uh, I use pencils. And so this one pencil, okay, fine. It's an homage to Milton Friedman. I just carry the pencil. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I use pencils all the time. Um, by the way, there is an old uh, uh there's an old anecdote about how NASA spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars trying to uh, develop the space pen, right? Which was a pen that you could write upside down in zero gravity and, and all these, you know, uh, stipulations, all these specifications they had to check. They spent millions of dollars to create the space pen. And the Russians, they just used pencils. I mean, uh, seriously, though, I mean, they work just as well. Anyway, so if you think about what it takes to get this pencil into your hand, and the fact that it only costs 10 cents. That is free market capitalism. It's giving you the product you want for the lowest possible cost. And if you don't want this product, look, you can go and... um, I see pencils that are way more expensive than this. I don't buy them, but some people want to. Some people prefer a more expensive pencil, right? Or as I call them, expensals. I don't, actually. I just made that up right now. Although that is a kind of neat name for a brand, the expensive pencil. The expensive. Anyway, just spitballing there. There are no bad ideas under the cone of creativity. I always say it. That's all the free market is, is just all of us making individual decisions, billions of them, if you think about it, every single second, right? Every single second of every single day, every person making a decision about what they want, 
how much they're willing to spend for it, under what circumstances. You know, right now I may be willing to spend only, I don't know, $100 on a chainsaw. But after a hurricane rips through, you know what? I might be willing to spend $300 for that chainsaw or generator, right? This is what it gets back to Sherry Beasley's economic illiteracy about the price gouging. I am of the opinion there really is no such thing as price gouging. There isn't. There's just there's somebody off there there's somebody offering you a good or service that's more expensive than you are willing to pay. That's that's what quote gouging is, right? Well, they're just taking advantage. Sure they are. Everybody does at any given moment and if the circumstances are not advantageous to the seller, are you taking advantage of getting a good price on that item? Are you taking advantage of that seller when they've got to move inventory out because the seasons are changing and they've got to deeply discount stuff? Here's a here's a good one. Turkeys. Everybody's all excited about buying a turkey, right, for Thanksgiving. Well, maybe you're not so excited because of inflation nowadays. But anyway, you're going to get a turkey. Most people are going to get turkeys. Okay. You know, turkeys are loss leaders. They take a loss on the turkeys. It's everything else that they make the money on, the grocery stores. Yeah. Turkeys don't make money. People don't buy turkeys all year long. It's rare people buy the whole bird turkey. When do you like? When do you go to the grocery store and buy a big old bird and cook it like you do on Thanksgiving? Right? How many days a year do you actually do that? Most people, it's one day, and it's Thanksgiving. Maybe two Christmas. That's it. But they got to keep them in the shelves or in the coolers, right? They stock the turkeys all year long. They're loss leaders. Does anybody cry for the grocery stores losing money on turkeys and the poultry plants that lose money on the turkeys only to make it all up on the one day? This idea that that these central planners know all of these different pressures, these market forces and factors. This is why I call it the fatal conceit of the central planners. They think they're that smart. It's a level of narcissism and hubris I cannot fathom. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. And uh, the phone number is 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Um, so uh, I'm going to take a, a quick detour here uh, because, and I do have uh, an email I'll get to about the Bud Beasley debate. I've got more audio and uh, specifically around the abortion issue and Cherry Beasley's position on this. And the media fact-checking, quote-unquote, afterwards. Uh, but uh, quick, uh, a quick sidestep down uh, a, a different rabbit trail here. Because I've gotten over, since I've been here, uh, well, I've been back, I should say, uh, for the last uh, year, over a year now, uh, I've gotten emails from a fellow named Scott, and I've read them on the air. Uh, the last one, I believe, he, he said something to the effect of, you won't read this on air. You don't have the guts to read it on air. Remember something about, uh, you know, the real president is Obama and Soros and Chinese, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and Pelosi. It's not even it's Biden. It's not Biden. And you won't say that because you're being controlled too, or whatever. I've read Scott's emails on the air, and I've responded to them. Apparently, Scott is a snowflake. Scott needs the—he's insecure, and he needs to hear, or he needs a a direct response via email, apparently. Okay, I was not aware of this. I am now aware of it. But, Scott, this will be our last interaction. I'm going to go ahead and block you from now on because, let's face it, you're just antagonistic, 
uh, to me in all of your uh, correspondence. And I, like, life's too short for me. I don't want to be uh, a source of, uh, uh, of you know, agitation for you, uh, which I obviously am. Everything about me and my show that I do, everything is just, is just agitation for him. Uh, and that's what this last email that I will ever read from Scott uh, is about today. He says, that music you play at the top of each hour sounds very much like something you'd hear in the Deep South, not here in the Piedmont of North Carolina. Of course, I don't expect to get a reply because you haven't replied to other messages I sent you. Do you reply to anyone that emails you? So, see, this is the victim. This is the tendency for interpersonal victimhood. This is a TIV personality right here. It's a perfect example of it. Repeatedly, this is how Scott interacts with me. First, he attacks, and then he pretends that he's the victim, because in his mind, he is. Well, it's me. You won't respond. First off, Scott, you don't deserve any of my time. You're not entitled to any of my time. You don't. I'm not required to give you one bit of my life. I'm giving this to you out of the goodness of my heart. <laughs> I no, really. I like. I don't have to respond to you or anybody if I don't want to. But I do. I I do prefer to respond to people. Now, when you have uh, proven yourself to be a bad faith actor, as Scott has. Um, and one who suffers from TIV, well, now I've made the decision that this is not worth my time any longer, and time is all, we don't get more of it, right? We don't know how much we have, so I'm not going to waste any more of my time reading Scott's emails. So I'll, I'm just going to now move you to the block bin. Uh, it was, it, I would, well, I'd like to say it was nice chatting with you, but it hasn't been. So uh, to answer your first, uh, to answer your last question, uh, yes, I do reply to uh, everyone that emails me. I try to. I either read them on the air or I respond to them, but I, I cannot possibly respond to all of the emails. You know why? I get hundreds a day. Hundreds. And they're not all directly to me, right? Some of them are just mass emails and that sort of thing. But I get hundreds of emails and direct messages on Twitter, on Facebook. I have four email accounts, right? I get a lot of messaging. I get phone calls, I get text messages, press releases from God knows who, people wanting to be on the show, people making comments, I have the Patreon stuff. I have a lot of ways that people interact with me. And it's like drinking from a fire hose. You are not entitled to a response. And I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, first of all. Second of all, the song that you are uh, criticizing me for playing, that's the theme song I've used for my show for over a decade. And your snide remark about it being something you would hear in the Deep South is actually accurate. It's Led Zeppelin's cover of an original tune written after the Great Mississippi Flood in like the 20s. And Led Zeppelin, the song you're hearing, that's Led Zeppelin, When the Levee Breaks. And that's a remake, that's a cover that Led Zeppelin did. That's Led Zeppelin, that's rock and roll. And it's metaphorical, it's, I, I chose the song for a reason. Not only does it have a fantastic guitar and harmonica riff, uh, it has a nice long intro, but also the lyrics speak to me, uh, and is this idea... And Bob Dylan was big about the water imagery as well, the, if it keeps on raining, the levee is going to break, and it is this... This common theme that we hear in politics and in culture, 
right, of the, you know, the straws that finally break the camel's back. If it keeps raining, like you want rain, there has to be some rain. Rain is good. But if it keeps on raining, eventually the levee breaks. And if the levee breaks, then we're all in trouble, right? So that's why I chose the the theme song. But your remark is some sort of antagonism about the, the choice of the song that it doesn't fit for this market. Now, I didn't know that Led Zeppelin is somehow or another, does, Led Zeppelin doesn't fit for Charlotte. That is news to me, and I think every programmer of every rock and roll station ever, well, at least since Led Zeppelin's been around, because that's been a mainstay. Led Zeppelin has been a mainstay on rock stations in every single market everywhere in America and overseas, so I'm not really clear why you would feel the need to come after me on that, but again, it's like this this uh, th- this opening salvo of the attack followed by the the playing of the victim card. Oh, you won't respond to me. You don't deserve a response when your initial overture is antagonism or is a, is, is a bad faith criticism. That's all. So have a nice life, Scott. Um, I highly encourage you to, uh, to explore the WBT.com page and find some other programs that might be more to your liking with better bump music, I guess, or better theme songs. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. I got another email here. This one is from Matthew. He says, Dear my favorite Pete. Wait a minute. There are other Pete's? Wait a minute. All right. Uh, he says, This Bud Beasley campaign is kind of frustrating for me, but also interesting from a political science perspective. It is frustrating because the candidates bring virtually nothing new to the table. No new policies, innovative ideas, youthful vigor. Nothing. No vim. Either. Not even Vim. I mean, you hear a lot about Vigor, but never Vim. What's up with that? I digress. Anyway, back to the email. Matthew says, I want to like Ted Budd, but he's just not an exciting candidate. At least he's not corrupt and disingenuous like Sherry Beasley, though. But I fear that Beasley presents well to those suburban moms who are swayed by things like slanted Google search results, and that may give her an edge. Nevertheless, this race is fascinating because... It's like the most pure toss-up bellwether campaign imaginable. We have a very generic Democrat versus a generic Republican type of race in one of the most purple toss-up states in America. The results of this race, especially as returns come in much sooner than some Western states and congressional districts, should actually be an early indicator of whether or not the Republicans will take the House and or the Senate. Great show, as always. Thank you, man. Oh, that's a great point. It is. It's like... You know, they, they they poll those questions, right? They say, you know, generic Republican, generic Democrat. And I've never really found those polls to be worth much because candidates matter. I make this argument all the time. The candidates matter. But we're now going to get a test, it seems, of whether or not, you know, a generic Republican versus a generic Democrat can win when the candidates don't matter, <laughs> all it is is a vote for the party and the leadership, because that's what it sounds like. That's what it seems like. All right, let me get back to this uh, uh, this abortion question. I'm going to re-rack it here because I did kind of uh, uh, drift away from it. So here is uh, the question. Uh, Tim Boyum from Spectrum News asks, 
Sherry Beasley, what does your ideal abortion law, what would it look like? And this is Sherry Beasley. I think the fundamental question really is, who makes the decision for a woman and her family? Is it you and your doctor? Or is it politicians up in Washington? All right, hang on a second. By that standard, she says that's the real question. And if that is the real question, and her answer is that politicians shouldn't be making those decisions, then the answer is undeniably and logically... There are no restrictions. Right? What, what, what other conclusion can you draw? If she's saying nobody else has the right to interfere in any decision in a woman's right to choose, then that is abortion without limitation. I know, having been a former judge and chief justice, that women have a constitutionally protected right to make this decision for themselves, with their physician, with free from government interference. That's not true either. And Congressman Budd has been very clear. It's not what Rose said. That he supports and is leading the charge on an absolute ban on abortion, without exceptions for rape, incest, or risk to a mother's health. And so that means that for women who have been sexually assaulted, they will be forced to carry the pregnancy to term. And for women who have ectopic pregnancies or septic uteruses or miscarriages that their bodies won't release, it means that they will not be able to get the life-saving treatment that they need, which is an abortion. And that's that not true either. It those... means that women no. will die. No. And that's unacceptable. I will support the parameters outlined in Roe versus Wade, which provide for protections and restrictions on abortion later in pregnancy. But now, wait a minute. Why do you support restrictions later in pregnancy if no politicians have the right to determine what restrictions you have? See, here's the problem with her position and the leftist position on this, is that they know they can't say abortions without restrictions, so then they say, I support Roe. But what they ignore is that Roe was changed by Casey, Casey v. Planned Parenthood. That litigation changed the parameters set forth in Roe. For all their talk about stare decisis, you know, keeping with the existing laws and precedent, right? For all their adherence and and, and tributes for stare decisis, Casey upended Roe. Roe crafted the trimester approach, first trimester, second trimester, right? Said almost no regulation at all during the first trimester. Regulations designed to protect the woman's health, but no uh, but 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 no furtherance of the of states you know interest in the second trimester, and then during the third trimester when the fetus is viable, then prohibitions are permitted. That was a trimester approach. Okay. KCV Planned Parenthood changed that. It retained what it declared the quote essential holding of Roe, the concept of a constitutional right to abortion, but. But the court relied on the prudential principle of stare decisis and asserted that the safeguarding of judicial integrity was necessary to prop up the decision. And so they came up with this idea of undue burden. Undue burden. Margot Cleveland writing at The Spectator, this was back in 2021 when the Dobbs case was first up before the court. 
She said in Roe v. Wade, the majority had spied an unwritten right to privacy hidden in the contours of the Constitution. But the lead opinion in Casey refused to repeat the fiction, finding refuge instead in the justice's reasoned judgment of the meaning of liberty. Casey v. Planned Parenthood likewise abandoned the trimester approach to abortion jurisprudence and replaced the strict scrutiny standard of Roe with the command that pre-viability states not impose an undue burden on women seeking abortions. The undue burden, pre-viability. That's the key. That was the key. So when Sherry Beasley talks about Roe v. Wade and how she supports that, she wants to take us backwards. Backwards? Pre-Casey? Because the pre-viability, undue burden, I mean, you, can't, you cannot place obstacles Pre-viability, so before the, the, the fetus is viable, can live you know, on its own, whatever that viability standard is, gestational period, whatever, before that period hits, before the 15th week or the 12th week or the 20th week or whatever, you cannot place undue burdens. So then it becomes a question of the viability, gestational limits, and all of that. Of course, all of that's out the window now because the court, Supreme Court uh, dis, uh, just uh, did away with all of this. Here's the key to, all, uh, to understand also, is that in the, uh, in the rationale of Sherry Beasley and those uh, presenting uh, her similar opinion, when they talk about the mother's health, they never explain that there are two different components to the, me- to the mother's health uh, formula. The first is physical, and you heard her talk about ectopic pregnancies and that sort of thing. So the first side is physical. The other side is mental health. And under that mental health formula, you can explain away anything. You can rationalize any reason for an abortion with an abortion provider who wants to do the abortion. If you go in and you make a case that's like, oh, you know what? I just, I, I think I'm going to be really depressed if and my whole life is going to be changed and I think I might not be in a good mental place afterwards. That's enough. That's a, that's a reason enough. So when they talk about I'm for restrictions for health of the mother, they're throwing in another category that basically is carte blanche. And they think you don't know that or they themselves don't know that. I don't know. I don't I'm not sure. She doesn't exactly exude command of this issue. Okay, like she's not conveying to me like a deep understanding of all of the ins and outs of the legal arguments here, but maybe that's by design. I mean, as a judge, I I would assume she does know this stuff, but she doesn't talk in that way. So I'm not sure if she does. So she might she might be mistaken or ignorant of it, or she might be just trying to mislead me. Either way, I'm not sure which is the better explanation. Here's talk 1110-993-WBT. Let me get back to the audio clip here. This is Sherry Beasley in the debate asked about abortion. What would be her ideal law? And she just said that uh, she supports the parameters from Roe v. Wade, but never explains what those are. And allow them only in the most severe cases, for instance, when a woman's life is at risk. And so I will fight to make sure that Roe v. Wade becomes the law of the land. It is the right thing to do, and women deserve that kind of freedom and protection. So just to follow up. Uh, in terms of what he's arguing, that you support abortion up until birth and late-term abortions. How do you respond to that specifically? No, I have been very clear. I support the Roe versus Wade framework, which allows for protections and restrictions 
on abortion later in pregnancy so that when abortion happens later in pregnancy, that it only happens when there are serious problems, like when the mother's life is at risk. So again, as I mentioned earlier, you have this mental health, uh, I don't want to say excuse, but uh, justification or, or reason, right? You have the mental health reason that is used as an end run around the physical health. But they just say women's health. And this is why, like Lindsey Graham, his bill makes a point to say physical health, not mental health, because mental health can be construed in all sorts of ways, you know, predictive in nature to say, well, if you make me have the kid that I don't want, then I'm going to not be in a good mental health place. Right. And OK, now that's a reason. So he takes that off the table in his bill. And she's not explaining that she's made. And that's why Ted Budd is saying that she she supports late term abortion. And she's saying, no, I don't. I support the parameters of Roe, which, as I mentioned earlier, have been upended by Casey. Right. So she's supporting the parameters of Roe that aren't even that weren't even being used under Casey's jurisdiction, then jurisprudence, I should say. So Casey v. Planned Parenthood was the controlling case, but everybody just calls it Roe. Does she not know that? Or does she does she know that most people don't know that? So she just talks in the way that most people understand. Or is she trying to deceive us? That's what Roe tells us. All right. Rebuttals. Mr. Bud, 30 seconds. Yeah, thank you. Again, I do prefer that this belongs to the states. I think our Supreme Court actually sent it back there. But if the Democrats, including what Miss Beasley would clearly support, is the most extreme bill in history when it comes to uh, when it comes to abortion rights, that's the Women's Health Protection Act. If they're going to do that, I'm going to counter that federally. But at the same time, I do believe it belongs to the states. I would clarify that it's it's not enumerated in the Constitution. Now it may be dealt with, and it has been dealt with in the Supreme Court. But as a judge, I believe she should know that. Correct. But, She's been very unclear, uh, Tim, that, uh, you know, about her previous uh, statements that she believes in abortion at any time for any reason, all the way up until the moment of birth. And Tim, she wants wants that at taxpayer expense. Right. So you could tell he's trying to land these punches. (laughs) He's just not landing them. Right. He's just not landing them. The taxpayer funded part of it is important. He, He threw that punch several times. And that's true. That was part of the. The Women's Health Protection Act, which was a radical bill and did allow for abortions all the way through birth. That's what makes it radical. Yes. And the taxpayer funding of the abortions. Yes. These are the things that make it radical and extreme. She supported it. She would have voted for it. She keeps saying, I support the parameters of Roe v. Wade, but she never tells you what those are. Because if you if she tells you what they are then it shows that what she's been saying has not been true. And what he's been saying has been true. Mrs. Beasley, 30 seconds. Uh, Roe does not say that. Uh, Roe is very clear, and I've been very clear, that I believe in the standards as outlined in Roe with protections and restrictions. Roe has restrictions for for late-term abortions. But it happens when women's health is at risk. The bottom line is... See, women's health is at risk. Mental health which gives you an opening you can drive a truck through. And that's how guys like Kermit Gosnell were able to do what they did. Congressman Bud wants to be in between a woman and her doctor. And there is no place in the exam room for Congressman Bud. 
that was the mic drop moment that the lefties were all celebrating. They thought that was like, oh my gosh, Slay Queen, that's awesome. I didn't find it to be well delivered, uh, and it was it's kind of a pedestrian attack. But uh, they didn't really have much else to cheer for uh, on Friday night during the debate. So whatever, I'll give it to them. All right, Winterbill's up next. Stick around. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>